I don't think there are many podcasts that call the the victim a dick this many times. Sarah, do you do you want to do the honors? Ooh. Oh my god. Okay, yes. All right. Ha. Ah. Welcome to Maintenance Phase, the podcast where we're making you a Scarsdale surprise. Whoa! (laughs) That is 100% better than anything I would have come up with. (laughs) No. It's just more Seinfeld related. I am Michael Hobbs. I'm Aubrey Gordon. I'm Sarah Marshall. Yes, Sarah is the host of a podcast called, I forget the name, Sarah, what's the name? You're wrong about that? I was going to do this joke. Damn it. (laughs) It's called What is Wrong with You? And it's below. Loved by all dads. <laughs> <laughs> this one is kind of a departure for our show, but we have been wanting to do like a maintenance phase, you're wrong about crossover event for as long as we have been doing the show. So this kind of is it. We were waiting for a story that had like some fun health stuff and also some fun like true crimey media debunking maligned woman stuff. And this story has been requested by a number of listeners. And as soon as I started looking into it, I was like, this is it. This is the one. I'm so excited. I'm so happy you guys asked me to talk about this particular topic. This is going to be very illuminating. I should also say before we get started that this episode has some abuse stuff and some like very detailed suicide stuff. So if that sucks... We love you. We'll see you next time. Yes. So, Aubrey, you're coming in fresh, right? You don't know anything about this. I am coming in totally fresh. I am on vacation with my extended family. Okay. And last night at dinner, somebody asked what our... I was like, I'm recording tomorrow. And I said, we're recording about something. I was like, my job is to come in fresh. So I don't really know anything about it, but it's called the Scarsdale diet. And she was like, oh my God. Oh yeah. And everyone around the table immediately started talking about the Scarsdale diet. And I was like, I have to go. <laughs> I have to leave this room. <laughs> and then Sarah, you, I heard you mention something like a, an oblique reference to this on a You Are Good episode, I think. Yeah. I was amazed that you even noticed this. Yeah. Cause it's cause I was already reading for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny cause like my knowledge of this is is like of its little droppings as a cultural event. And so I'm really excited to get the the full story from you. Um, but yes, I can give you cultural event stuff. Okay, great. This is a massive cultural event. Are you guys familiar with this concept of a forgot buster? No. Well, I remember you using this example in like a very early You're Wrong About episode. Hmm. It's like a movie that like everybody sees. It's like culturally obligatory And then 10 years later, nobody can really say what happened in it. And they don't. And it's because it's like you watch it once and then you're like, that was great. Do I feel the need to like sit around watching Avatar on my TV? Right. Not particularly. So Avatar is a good example. This was one of the biggest cases of the early 1980s. One of the things Mm -hmm. I came across in the reading was that 100 journalists flew in for the verdict of this trial. Wow. Whoa. It it also says something about the American journalism industry at the time. (laughs) Like there were a hundred newspapers. Yes. It was a massive deal. There was a there was a TV movie that came out just after it with Ellen Burstyn that was based exclusively on the trial transcript. <laughs> it's a really weird. It's, it's on YouTube. It's really weird. I've never heard of someone doing that. But then nobody like no one has heard of this. And also so for this episode, I read two books. The first is called Mrs. Harris by Diana Trilling. And she wrote this book in 1982 that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And 
there's now, there's no Wikipedia entry for it. It's out of print. Like it has completely fallen off the cultural radar. And then the other book that I'm basing this on is called Very Much a Lady by Shauna Alexander, who was the first female reporter for Life magazine. And Sarah, you will know this. The You know the SNL sketches where it's Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin and he's like, Jane, you ignorant slut? Yeah. Those sketches are based on Shauna Alexander's segments on 60 Minutes. She used to have this segment <laughs> where she would like a feminist debates with a conservative. Mm. I didn't even know those were like based on anything. Right. Because we end up with these like parody fossils and we've forgotten like the actual event has just decomposed. It's just this fascinating forgot buster turducken where it's this like <laughs> forgot buster case that produced forgot buster books by Forgot Buster journalists. I've been watching a lot of disaster movies, but I feel like you're like the disaster expert who comes in who's like, ladies and gentlemen, it is a triple mudslide avalanche <laughs> meteor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our sleepy little vacation town won't know what hit it. So this episode is the story of Jean Harris. She's born in 1923 in Cleveland. She's raised mostly by her mother because her father sucks. Mm. Jean Harris later says he never should have had children. An unbelievably unhappy man to be around. He only remembered the unpleasant things. Nothing made him happy and there was no way to not make him mad. Wow. I don't know if this is typical of people who grew up in homes like this, but she she sort of deals with the chaos of her home life by being a super high achiever at school. She's the class president. She's on the swim team. She wins something called the Current Events Contest. Which I don't know what that is, but it's something they did in the 1930s in Cleveland. This is the event that's most current. I guess. Congratulations. <laughs> As she gets older, she goes to Smith College. Hmm. In 1945, she marries her high school sweetheart, a guy named Jim Harris. Mm -hmm. She says that the only reason... She married him was that her dad didn't like him. So it was like her <laughs> only act of rebellion, basically, in her life up to this point. Good for her. I know. Right? <laughs> you know, first marriage, it's just for practice. Yeah. <laughs> so after they graduate from college, he gets a job in the auto industry doing something with carburetors. And they move to Detroit. She gets work as a school teacher until she gets pregnant. And then after she has her kids, she's at home taking care of the kids. But she sort of misses work, misses having a career. So she starts running a daycare slash primary school out of her basement. But you just can't run daycares out of your basement anymore. Nobody wants to work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this period also establishes a theme in her life where she's extroverted. She's, she's hanging out with all the other wives. She's like kind of a social butterfly and doing really well. But she thinks that she's really bad at everything. So her friends from the time tell Shauna Alexander that she was always just saying something self-deprecating and she could never take a compliment. When you're like, oh, that was a nice cake that you made for the brunch this weekend. She'd be like, oh, it doesn't, oh, it's it's not a real recipe. I just like whipped it up from like powdered mix or something. I challenge you to find a woman of this generation or who came of age in the 20th century who can take a compliment <laughs> on her baking. Because like there are some, but this is her serving as an example of kind of like what female socialization will do to a person over time. Yes, I ate a lovely cake last night served by a woman in her 70s who kept saying, I'm just learning how to bake. It's not very good. Was it my mom? <laughs> That's great. I'm so happy she's having a vacation. She really needs one. So basically, as she is getting more into her career and she's actually getting more ambitious, she goes back to school to get a master's degree in education at Wayne State University. She finds that she's just drifting apart from her husband. He's 
kind of not that into his career, and he's also not as into all the socializing. He's just like an introvert. So in 1964, she files for divorce. Mm. And so she's still in Detroit. She's 43 years old. She's now a single mom. Mm. She gets a job as an administrator at something called Springside, which is a super posh girls' school in the Philadelphia suburbs. Shauna Alexander says she tackled her new job at Springside with a level of dedication that would have brought joy to the heart of Vince Lombardi, Uh. which I think from context clues means that she's working hard. That's a sports metaphor. (laughs) Vince Lombardi said winning, I forget the exact quote, but like winning isn't the most important thing. It's the only thing, which like I fail to see how that really relates to administrating a girls school. But like (laughs) it's a very competitive culture we live in. So she's in Philadelphia, and in December of 1966, she meets Herman Tarnauer. Mm, is he as sexy as his name? I was just going to send you guys a photo. Oh, uh, uh, that's a face I don't want anywhere near my vagina. That's how I'm going to put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got uh, who? He's just sort of showing his teeth is how I would describe his expression yeah. in this photo. Just like, here's what my teeth look like. Yeah. It's like he's been reading like an incel subreddit all day about how <laughs> smiling is a sign of submission and chimps. And then someone asks him to smile for a photo and he's like really torn about whether to do it. Yeah. I mean, ordinarily, I would feel bad about talking about somebody like this, but it's a very weird case in that everyone, like including his friends, say that Herman Tarnauer is just a huge bag of dicks. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. With teeth on top. He has like a life story that like should make him appealing. He grows up dirt poor in Brooklyn. He like works his way into medical school. After he graduates, he moves to Westchester, which is like an hour outside of New York. And at the time, it's like the boonies, but it's kind of quickly becoming like a bedroom community for old money New York people. So it's where like the whatever Astors and the Carnegies and stuff go for their summer houses and their weekend homes and stuff. So he sets up a practice there and immediately becomes like the doctor to the wealthy. He has this kind of idea of like a country doctor. He knows them. He knows their names. He knows their servants' names. He goes golfing with them. He goes to their parties. He has these big parties at his house. Mm -hmm. He's a really good listener. He's really good at like bedside manner when it's rich people. Ah. Everybody else in the entire county who's like middle class or working class says that he's just a complete dick and like will not listen to them. He will – he says – that he will treat their servants for free. Like, oh, if you have, like, someone who works in your house, I'll help them. But then he will report back about their medical conditions to their employer. <gasps> oh, gross! He's also known as, like, a, a inveterate womanizer. He at one point apparently tells a friend, he says, women were never a problem for me because there were always nurses available. Oh, God! So he just, like, <laughs> goes through his employees, apparently. Cool, grotesque. He apparently disconnected the gas in his own house because when women would come over, they would try to cook breakfast for him in the morning. And he didn't want them sticking around. <laughs> so there just Whoa. wasn't gas in his house. And he ate out every meal for 12 years. I don't know how to react to that. This guy never wanted an egg. (laughs) (laughs) So Gene meets him at this party in Philadelphia in late 1966. And it's one of those things where like you sit next to somebody at dinner and you're at a big party, but then you just kind of 
take each other onto like the love seat in the corner and you just talk to each other for hours and ignore the entire party around you. That's a very sexy description. Afterwards, like he lives in upstate New York and she's in Philadelphia, but he starts sending her like little gifts. He sends her like history books of stuff that he mentioned. He sends her a Christmas card with a wicked fucking neg. It says, you were a delight to be with. I kept wondering if you could keep up the pace. Also, whether or not you're a good dancer. Oh, I hate men. (laughs) This guy later had a son and that son was Mystery the Pickup Artist. I kept wondering if you were as smart as me, but almost. So I'm impressed. I love it when men talk about intelligent women as if they're like a dog walking on their hind legs. (laughs) (laughs) So he invites her to New York City and he's going to like show her around New York City. This is an incredible crossover moment for the show, Aubrey. (gasps) On their second date... They go see Angela Lansbury in Maine. Shut the fuck up. Are you kidding me? (laughs) It's so weird. Yeah. I love this so much. That's the role that she talked about. She was like, oh, I was living that New York City life and I put on some pounds. And one day I saw the glint of teeth in my audience. And I thought those people are having a nice date right now. So they do that on the Saturday. And then on the Sunday, he invites her up to his like estate. He lives in this apparently like Frank Lloyd Wright knockoff house with like a bunch of buildings. Frank Lloyd Wright, yeah. One of the weirdest fucking details about this story is that he has two live-in servants who are named Suzanne and Henry. And they like handle the house and his scheduling and all this kind of stuff. And they're both French-speaking Belgians. And according to both books that I've read for this, this was like a trend among rich people was like not to have French speaking servants, not to have Belgian servants, but to have French speaking Belgian servants was like a a status symbol in upstate (laughs) New York in the 1960s. Did they make chocolates for you? (laughs) They were all just really into Poirot. (laughs) So they start dating sometime in 1967. Within a couple months, he asks her to marry him. He gives her a ring, which I looked this up. Adjusted for inflation, it's worth $90,000. And he offers her the ring, gets down on one knee, the whole thing. And apparently she hesitates. She's like, "Uh, I don't know if I want to be tied down. I don't know if I want my kids to move to upstate New York and like move in with this guy into like this big house. She's really focused on her career at this point. She's just like, uh, give me some time to think about it. And then a couple months goes by. Eventually, she's like, uh, should we talk about the wedding ring thing? And he's like, you know what? I changed my mind. I I don't think I'm a settling down kind of guy. Oh, Herman. There's then a period where it's sort of like, well, well, what now? You've asked me to marry you. You've now kind of reneged on the invitation. So it's kind of weird for a little while. And eventually she writes him a letter basically saying, I don't care that you don't want to marry me. Like, let's just keep hanging out. So their relationship goes on for the next 14 years. And he basically takes this letter, her kind of reaffirming of the relationship. He takes it as an invitation to just act like he's single. (laughs) They see each other on weekends. And during the weekdays, he's dating other people. 
and sometimes carrying on serious relationships, sometimes less serious relationships. In 1970, he asked at least two other women to marry him. Hmm. Basically, everyone, including his friends in his life, say that he's just a, a take it or leave it guy. He's just like, this is the relationship. If you want to see me on weekends, that's what our relationship is going to be. We're not going to be in like a normal relationship. If you like that, great. If you don't, buy. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. It sounds like by all accounts, he is a dick mm-hmm. in the books that you read was there anything reconciling was she like into the dickishness was she also a little bit of a dick like what's the what's her <laughs> response so diana trilling's book which is like kind of reactionary and like quite bad for reasons that we'll get into her mm-hmm. theory is that basically gene harris is a masochist and she she liked being abused I don't love this explanation. That's not what being a masochist yeah, means, but totally. proceed. Yeah, I don't, I don't find that very convincing. In Shauna Alexander's book, she talks about how it might be something to do with her father, that she had this kind of distant, horrible presence in her life who, like, never gave her approval. And that's essentially the pattern with High. She calls him High. In, in in the writings with her and various interviews with her that I've seen, she seems to kind of be like fascinated by him and admiring of him. Mm-hmm. He was somebody who considered himself a sophisticate. He was someone who knew a lot about history. He traveled a lot. And it seems like she liked listening to him and she thought he was smart. Mm-hmm. It seems like he liked bouncing himself off of her and she liked being bounced off of Hmm. but like does she know about the non-monogamy of the situation she knows about it they have various conversations where she's like just don't rub it in my face okay my sense from her is actually that it's something that she wants to be okay with right because it's like she's agreed to this he's basically said take it or leave it Mm -hmm. and she's like okay i i can handle this i can handle this but then in the actual reality of it she really can't like it really hurts her feelings it feels like we're getting very close to just being like she's a chapter in he's just not that into you i know (laughs) but then another another thing that i think is an important factor to take into consideration here is that in 1971 she gets a new job she she moves to connecticut she moves to another school where she's the headmistress so she's like moving up in the world she's finally in charge of the school and almost immediately she starts getting fatigued it's like Mm -hmm. an unbelievably stressful position to run a school especially at this time where it's like only women did this for for women's schools which means the pay was abysmal and no one takes your job seriously (laughs) and you have to live on campus so if you lose your job you also lose your housing at the same time and like your car and stuff it's really amazing how like bad these jobs were So she's just like super duper stressed out. She's getting this fatigue. So he prescribes her desoxin, Mm -hmm. which is like a straight up methamphetamine. It's not like like a methamphetamine. It's like an actual methamphetamine. (laughs) And people used to use it for diets back in the day, even though she's not dieting. But it's something that basically just like revs you up all day. You're not hungry. You can't sleep. And it gives you this sort of... I can do anything kind of feeling. Studio gave those to Judy Garland and, you know, that worked out great for her. It's weird to prescribe this to your girlfriend and not, like, explain to her, like, it's sort of a big deal. (laughs) It's weird to prescribe anything to your girlfriend before I think about it. (laughs) At some point, this was years later, she goes to a doctor for something else. You know, they're like, are you taking any medication? She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm taking Dizoxin. And they're like, What? How long have you been taking that for? And she's like, oh, six years. And they're like, what? (laughs) Like, this is not normal. And I guess the doctor at that time 
is like, you're not taking anything else, are you? And she's like, oh, yeah, the guy I'm seeing also gave me like some downers for my back and also some sleeping pills to help me sleep at night because the dioxin keeps me so ripped up. And I guess this <laughs> other doctor is like, you've got to be fucking kidding me with this. And eventually she goes back to high and she's like, oh, this other doctor was kind of uncomfortable. And he's like, ah, oh, he's just a quack. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So she just keeps taking it. I feel like she's about to be like, listen, his regimen for me is that I just swallow a couple tablespoons of baking soda and then chug some vinegar. It's fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. I'm a science fair volcano. For him, <laughs> but it's for him. Sean Alexander's theory on this is that what is actually happening is that Gene Harris is depressed mm. and the fatigue is a sign of depression. She's extremely lonely. Her kids are now grown up and out of the house. Because she's the headmistress of the school, she can't really, like, make friends at work. She's in this sort of Mm. high society Connecticut world that she doesn't really understand. She's dating somebody who, like, kind of treats her like shit and, like, doesn't really value her as a person. Shauna Alexander's theory is that basically she's been suffering from depression for an extremely long time, but because she's taking these pills which deal with the fatigue and the other symptoms Mm -hmm. of the depression, right? Like insomnia and these other things that happen when you're clinically depressed. She doesn't know that she's depressed and she doesn't know that she's covering up the symptoms. So it just Mm -hmm. sort of simmers underneath the surface and she's not like aware of how much she's struggling, partly because also when you're taking methamphetamines every day, you are like insanely productive. Like she's very good at her job. I think that like mania, not that that's what it is if you're on a methamphetamine, but sort of like a state we're like vibrating at a very high frequency is often not noticed in women because people Mm. are like yeah she's like doing what she's supposed to do for once so after like three years of taking this insane drug cocktail that her boyfriend is giving her he starts seeing someone else pretty seriously so there's a receptionist at the medical clinic where he works named lynn triforos who throughout all of this has never spoken to the press Everything we know about her is, like, second and third-hand sources, so, like, very big grain of salt. She starts working for Herman Tarnauer in 1964. It's not totally clear when they begin dating, but by 1974, it becomes clear to Jean that, like, they are becoming more serious. She's basically his, like, weekday girlfriend. And (laughs) the way that she finds out, I guess Lynn will send letters to high whenever they're traveling. So they'll go to like Athens and they get to the Four Seasons and it's like, oh, there's a letter for you, Dr. Tarnauer. And it's like, hi, sweetie, I miss you or whatever. And it's like little things like this where it just, it makes it harder for Jean to ignore what's going on. <sighs> she finds cufflinks where he's like, oh, a patient gave me these like nice new cufflinks. And then she looks mm. on the back of them and they're like, I love you, love Lynn or whatever. My patient really loved me. I also just want to appreciate that we're nearing what I'm assuming is going to be some level of sex scandal with two women named Jean and Lynn. <laughs> I know. And also <laughs> the fact that like Jean is now like 49 and Lynn Treforos is 37 It's just like a bunch of adults doing like some kind of middle school stuff for like the rest of the story. Love it. So speaking of middle school stuff, shortly after he starts dating Lynn more seriously, this is wild. Gene starts getting anonymous phone calls. Nope. I feel like this is something that like you have to explain to like the youths because we're so used to a world where like you know who is calling you, right? And if it's a blocked number – you just wouldn't pick up. So like the the institution of anonymous phone calls has kind of disappeared from American life. But like there were a couple decades in there when like the phone just rang and you just picked it up. 
And like you would just be talking to like whoever was on the other end without warning. You guys remember like obscene phone calls. Like that was something we heard about as kids, right? Sure. Yeah. Heavy breathers. I definitely like picked up the phone at one point and there was just like random heavy breathing. And I was like, what? Before there was chat roulette. Oh. There was obscene phone calls. So Gene starts getting anonymous phone calls in 1974, but they're not just like random heavy breathing phone calls. They're about her. So she'll pick up the phone and someone like a male voice will say, do you ever think about Herman Tarnauer fucking other women? Do you ever think about how bad you are at fucking him? One of them says, you should go to sex school, which is just kind of weird. <laughs> that is extremely middle school. You promised middle school stuff. Yeah. Never has a more seventh grade thing been said. Yeah. She starts getting obscene letters, too, that are like about her, like specific things about her. And the obscene phone caller, whoever this is, will leave numbers they'll they'll call her office and leave like oh call me back at this number and then she'll call the number and it's lynn triferos what lynn picks up and she's like is this lynn triferos and then lynn is like why are you calling me like this is really inappropriate and weird that you're calling me and gene is like i didn't know this was you and then lynn is like nice try gene it gets to the point where lynn triferos changes her own number 10 times hmm. and every single time the anonymous caller calls Gene Harris and gives the new number to Gene Harris and then Lynn has to change her number again. Wait, Mike, I have a theory. Ooh, ooh. The person making these phone calls, is it Jigsaw? It sounds like <laughs> something Jigsaw would do. <laughs> the thing is, I'm actually very frustrated by this because like dramatic catharsis wise, you'd want to know who was doing yeah. the phone calls. We never find out. To this day, we do not know. So we don't know that it wasn't Jigsaw. <laughs> so <laughs> technically... You can't prove this negative, can you? <laughs> the only theory that makes sense, the only person who would do this, right, obviously is Lynn. But it's like a man's voice. So Lynn put someone up to this. Or Gene is making all this up. Or Herman's doing it. Or there's like some other person who like is meddling for so like i'm like does does herman tarnauer have like a like a fellow freemason who's like meddling in his love life or something who runs a sex school yeah <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get business for the sex school those recruiting flyers under the windshield wipers didn't yeah. really work so <laughs> there's also a really weird detail in shauna alexander's book where she says that Herman Tarnauer is also getting obscene phone calls for nine years. What? But he just like what? doesn't think it's that big of a deal. This is what people coped <laughs> so, like, with in the 70s, I guess. I guess. It's just like, okay, no, no reason to like look into that at all. But like, fair enough. But then whatever is happening is basically like driving Gene nuts. Every time she brings this up with hi, he's like, you're crazy. This is not real. Like, you need to stop bothering Lynn. Mm -hmm. But then he will also talk shit about Lynn to Gene. Obviously. He'll say, like, oh, I could never settle down with Lynn. Like, she's too much of an intellectual lightweight. She's not like you. Gaslight gatekeep girl boss. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, like, he's he, he talks shit about his other, like, exes to Gene. And you can only assume that, of course, he's talking shit about Gene to his other women that he's dating. 
This is a this is an excerpt from Diana Trilling's book. She says Herman Tarnauer had an insatiable appetite for small power. Hmm. Whatever his seriousness as a physician, in his private life he was in the business of indulging some profoundly unserious notion of what constitutes manhood. There's something disturbed and disturbing in the sexuality of someone who plays women off each other as he played these women off of his. This was not altered by the fact that they obviously conspired in it. The world is full of masochistic people dedicated to their own worst interests. But a developed person doesn't look for his proofs of strength by moving in upon other people's weaknesses. So it's very like very 1970s phrasing. It's not a good book. <laughs> and it has a lot of ideas that I don't really like. But I do think Herman Tarnauer could have put a stop to this on some yeah. level, right? Yeah. He could have said like, look, Lynn is a nice person. I'm not going to say anything negative about her to you. You should not speak negatively about her to me. Well, Hart Tarnauer has not read The Ethical Slut, I, I would <laughs> wager. And like, this is a hypothesis, but potentially maybe the point of this for him is not to have one woman he's in a relationship with or two women or a bunch of women, but to like play them off each other in yeah. a relationship drome. This is some major like divorce dad energy too. Like, yeah. Your mom yeah. would never let this happen. Like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. you're like, oh, no, thanks. So in 1977, <laughs> as all this is going on, she gets a job at Madeira, which is another posh girl school in the DC suburbs. It's like half an hour, an hour away from DC. At the time, the school motto is, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. Function in disaster, finish in style. <laughs> Why would you have disaster in your school motto? Because they knew where America was going before anyone else did. <laughs> so she gets this headmistress job at this like very prestigious school. She's apparently very good at the job. I guess this school was just essentially like a glorified summer camp for rich kids. And when she gets there, she's like, what the fuck are you doing? The, the Christmas break apparently is six weeks long. They're only in classes four days a week. Ooh. I guess the school is not accredited. <laughs> so like people couldn't write <laughs> off oh, donations. No. It's just like a mess when she gets there. Sounds like a great school. <laughs> and also because she's on a bunch of meth, she's like very efficient. So she like goes about <laughs> sort of reforming this school. I mean, this is the period where... Under normal circumstances, like this is where she should have started to drift away from high because it's it's now a five hour drive to see him. Mm. He's getting closer to Lynn. He's now going on these elaborate vacations with Lynn. That's something he used to do with her. All the signs are there that this has basically run its course and also that he's swapping her out for like the younger, hotter model story as old as time, right? Mm. But – She's both in denial about what's happening and she's kind of addicted to him. It seems like she can't stop herself from wanting to see him. Mm. Another sign that this is becoming just a really negative force in her life is that the weird attacks start escalating. Mm. So she leaves a dress in his house, like in the attic or in the back of the closet or something. She pulls it out and it's covered in shit. What? Well, human shit? That's thing, I don't... Both of the books just say excrement. Why would you not say whose it was? The only explanation that makes sense is Lynn Triferos, but also it's like a 37-year-old woman <laughs> like smearing right. shit on someone else's clothes. That seems weird. Listen, guys, I'm 38 now, but me a year ago, 100% could have done this. <laughs> <laughs> 
not anymore. I've really grown leaps and bounds in the last 10 months. I knew it. <laughs> and of course, she is convinced that Lynn is doing this. She's convinced that Lynn has done all of this to fuck with her and to make her seem crazy. And it, it, it's sort of gaslighty in that every time she brings it up to him, he's like, are you kidding me? Like, of course that wasn't her. Mm-hmm. And he, he starts doing something where he'll threaten to not see her if she brings it up. And so there's a point where he refuses to speak to her for two weeks when she brings up something that she thinks Lynn does. She sends her an obscene hmm. Valentine's Day card. And he's also punishing her like a child, too. He's I like know. giving her a timeout from the relationship, which is so demeaning. Exactly. And then also, because she's been on meth for so long, and also because this job is like a pretty big step up in responsibility, there's also like signs of erraticness starting to show up at work. So people say she'll just like trail off in the middle of sentences. She starts to cry kind of randomly in conversations. She'll have these tantrums and like storm out of meetings and just disappear for the rest of the day. She has like a weird thing with rules. She really wants all the girls to follow the rules. She at one point she bans oranges from campus because kids are leaving the peels around. And then anytime she sees a peel – she just like melts down or like a kid eating an orange. She like goes nuts. And the other teachers are like, sometimes you just got to let stuff go. It's like we get that it's a rule, but like you can't have an event every single time you see an orange. This is a real cane mutiny type situation. It's to the point where she stops eating in the cafeteria at lunch because she gets so triggered by the oranges. Like me in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. She's in the band room. Yeah. <laughs> She's basically like she kind of feels the walls closing in on her and she feels like stress coming at her from every direction. So she later says, I think it had something to do with being a woman who had worked a long time and had done the things a man does to support a family, but still been a woman. And I always felt Hmm. that when I was in Westchester, I was a woman in a pretty dress and went to a dinner party with Dr. Tarnower. And in Washington, I was a woman in a pretty dress and the headmistress, but I wasn't sure who I was and it didn't seem to matter. I was a person sitting in an empty chair. I can't describe it any better than that. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like most of the ways that I've heard sort of depression and anxiety discussed around particularly women of this particular generation is that it was just sort of the price of admission. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were going to feel emotionally bad most slash all of the time. And you would go to the doctor and get whatever, you know, pills you would get and sort of hope for the best. And that was about it. No one was talking about much. Yeah, there's a reason mother needs a little helper. I I think there's something, I mean, I think this is, this also happens now too, where it's like, there's something in your consciousness that has changed. So Jean Harris identifies as a feminist at this time. She's actually like quite progressive. One thing I'll say for her, I mean, every single school that she works at, one of the first things she does is increase teacher pay. Ah, Jean. You know, in her head, she has this new consciousness, but she also lives in an extremely conservative world still. Mm. You know, she's at a girl's school. She's the headmistress in the system where like she just has to suck up to men all the time. Like the board is all dudes. And she's she talks about how she's barely making more than Suzanne, like Herman Tarnower's like live-in servant lady. Mm -hmm. And she's like running a school with, I think it's like 450 students. I think stories about people who are adjacent to the rich are always really interesting in this way. And like that these are two people who are like 
Like the fact that they have to perform stately wealth is just creating more stress for them and having yeah. to like conjure that with very minimal resources. Totally. Right. And also if she brings that up with the people like that can change her pay, <laughs> it's like this awkward conversation. Like they perceive it as an attack. It's like, listen, she piloted the orange ban. She deserves a raise. <laughs> <laughs> so she's feeling terrible. The walls are closing in. And so in October of 1978, she goes to a gun store and buys a handgun. Did she have a story at the time where she's like, oh, I my car got keyed by one of the orange people? <laughs> she says it's complicated. I mean, she did apparently live in like a big scary house on campus, but she had been sort of intermittently suicidal throughout her life. Mm. And so she says it was a gun just in case, but it was like just in case of two different things. I feel like this gun purchase is when this turns fully into like a Miranda Lambert song. <laughs> you cheated on me and now you're going to die. Right. Like it's like some real like lady revenge stuff. I feel like is where we're headed. Well, OK, do you, we're actually getting to the darkest chapter of the story. Do you want to know what it is? Sure. By far the darkest fucking chapter of this is we're finally going to talk about the Scarsdale diet. Yes. <laughs> Can't wait. So this is the reason why like anybody knows about this, because the Scarsdale diet was like, of course, now completely memory hold, also a forgot buster, but like uh. was massive at the time. Apparently the Queen of England was on the Scarsdale what? diet at one Oh point. my God. <laughs> but okay, I remember hearing about this as a tween because I read a lot of Kathy comic compilations and this okay. definitely got mentioned. <laughs> what did it say about it? What do you know about it? So all I remember about it but it was that you got like a half a grapefruit and like whole like plain whole wheat toast for breakfast, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so this is we're in the 70s. Yeah. 78. Yeah. This is some peak cabbage soup diet time. Hmm. The master cleanse is like having a moment during all of mm -hmm. this. This is the heyday of carob. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> carob's 15 minutes are happening. Trigger warning, <laughs> carob. <laughs> there was also a diet that a uh, family friend got married in the 70s and the diet that she did before her wedding was you just eat grapefruit and eggs. Oh, <laughs> okay. So like it is peak time for people treating super wacky diets as like somehow reasonable and normal. What I'm fascinated by is it was also a time where you could just say the most deranged shit about a diet and people would believe you. Not like now. <laughs> I know. Like, not that we've gotten like so much savvier now, but it's like, but. okay, so the, the origin of the Scarsdale diet is a single paragraph in an article in the New York Times in April of 1978, which is a completely rote nothing burger of an article that's like, New Yorkers are trying to get in shape for the summer. The paragraph reads, a vice president of Bloomingdale's was shown the Scarsdale diet by the owner of a fish restaurant, decided to try it, lost 20 pounds in 19 days, and claims that he was never hungry and never tired. On six out of seven days, you can have substantial dinner and you can eat in large quantities, he reports. The diet, available from the Scarsdale Medical Group, consists mostly of steak, fish, chicken, vegetables, and fruits. No liquor is allowed. That's it. That's the paragraph. And everyone was like, tell me more? Yeah, I mean... The birth of the diet is like pure cynicism. So book publishers see this paragraph. They contact Herman Tarnauer. It turns out there is no Scarsdale diet. There is a single piece of paper that he hands to patients. 
he he's tired of giving them the same advice all the time. Mm-hmm. So he and the other doctors in the clinic, by the way, who get no credit for this, come up with this diet plan of like, it's basically Monday, eat this, Tuesday, eat that. Like that's all it is. It's just a seven day diet plan. And you repeat it for another week. And it's, they call it a two week diet plan. As soon as he explains this to the publisher, the publisher is like, oh yeah, no big deal. We'll just expand that into a book. Like we'll just add filler, like make a book out of this like single piece of paper. That's the birth of every diet book. By the I mean, way, if we're honest, it's like, yes, we have one to two pages of information or analysis to offer. And then the only way we can turn this into a profiting venture is to turn it into yeah. a book, which has to be like, I don't know, 150 to 250 pages. So we got to get yeah. to work. Now that you say that, it is really funny to think about a diet complicated enough that it requires an entire 200-page book to <laughs> yeah, explain I know. it. Just this weird Byzantine choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah, had yeah. oats for breakfast, <laughs> turn to page 67. Or like the tapioca diet. First, he must journey to South America to find the tapioca yeah. tree and pound its bark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they bring on this guy named Sam Sinclair, who was like a Madison Avenue advertising guy and had previously written 27 self-help books. Wow. Their conversation with Herman Tarnauer is taking place in June of 1978, and they need the book to be out by January because that's when everybody (laughs) buys diet books, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was shocked reading this book. It is one of the most unethical things I've ever read. I don't I don't even mean like the most unethical diet I've ever read. Hmm. Like I read Alan Dershowitz's book <laughs> for your <laughs> you about. Did. Like this <laughs> this might have been worse. It's it's something that I think the diet industry does in more subtle ways now where every time it describes the diet in general it's like, oh, it's easy. It's not that hard to follow. You'll never be hungry. You don't have to remember anything complicated. It's so simple, right? Is it meth? (laughs) (laughs) And then the minute you get to the actual specifics, it's just like an unbelievably restrictive diet. So yeah, it's like a half a grapefruit and one piece of bread every morning. And then lunch will be like a bowl of fruit salad. One, One of the lunches is a half a cup of cottage cheese and six walnuts. So like no food. And then it'll be like a whatever, a four ounce thing of fish and some like steamed broccoli for dinner or something. So you just feel like you're going to pass out all the time, which is exactly, you know, what you want. I have not done the analysis, but like most of these daily diets are probably less than a thousand calories. It's like extremely restrictive. You're not allowed to snack. You're not allowed to drink alcohol. It just like, it just sucks ass. And then, of course, because all the rhetoric around the diet is like, it's easy and you'll never be hungry. It's also like, well, if you can't do it, you clearly just don't have the willpower and like, it's your fault. Mm. Yeah, that's like the rhetoric of diets, right? It's just like, wow, we came up with this simple, easy thing and you can't even manage that. There is a decent amount of fiber in it, which suggests that if someone were on it, they could poop on their girlfriend's clothes. So <laughs> file that away. <laughs> Oh my God, this is the smoking gun! <laughs> I know. <laughs> but what's amazing, this this book sells 6 million copies. Holy shit. This also becomes like a source of tension in his relationship with Jean because she, behind the scenes, was trying to like tone down the book a little bit. Aww. The first paragraph of the book, I think kind of rather famously, is like, the only thing to know about this diet is that it works. <laughs> Jean had like scrapped that paragraph and was like, this is unethical. This doesn't really work for most people and you shouldn't 
do that. And she got in a big fight, apparently, with the this like scammy author that they brought on to write the book. And she apparently at one point rewrote the entire manuscript. Whoa. She does. I mean, she does like months of work on this because she kind of thinks it's like beneath him to be doing a diet book. One, one thing that I think really has changed in America is like it's he is considered extremely tacky for being a doctor who's peddling a diet. <laughs> like that that is something that we have lost. I'd like to go back to that. Bring it back. Make it gauche. <laughs> After the book comes out and it's this like massive smash hit, he sends her a check for $4,000 and a note that says, I must make all disbursements at this time. What? And it becomes this like source of tension in their relationship and kind of like a metaphor for like where their relationship is now. She's just like, I didn't want money. I wanted you, like I wanted you to tell me that like I couldn't have done this without you, sweetie. Right. I wanted recognition. Yeah. It's like, I want you to tell me that like you value me as a person. The only time I've heard the word disbursement was when I got like a stipend check from school I was a grad student at. And yeah, I did not have like a really loving, tender relationship with the University of Wisconsin. Right. She's all she's she's torn between I would rather get nothing and recognition or like what I'm worth. Mm. He will eventually make three million dollars off of this book. (gasps) She's also like, okay, either tell me that you love me and I helped with your book or pay me what I'm worth. You dick. That's right. Pick one, but you've done the worst of both worlds right now. (laughs) Yeah, you've done the most insulting thing. Yeah. Basically, this book kind of marks the beginning of the end of their relationship. Hmm. They're five hours apart. He is also, now that he's a celebrity, he has, like, just logistically, he just has, like, a lot less time. He's, like, going on The Tonight Show and shit. And he probably has more groupies, I would imagine. They're like, hey, you're the creep I saw on TV, as opposed to, hey, you're the creep I saw at the country club. Exactly. And it's it's feeding his ego, too. So he just, like, isn't around, and he's kind of – he thinks he's better than all of this now. And hmm. he starts becoming more distant. Like, she'll she'll write to him, and he just won't write back. Or she'll call him, and he won't call back. He, he instructs the servants – to not patch her through. <laughs> Yikes. Once again, bringing the divorced dad energy. This is the thing. He's, he's basically ghosting her, even though we didn't have a word for that yet. He's not having a conversation about it. He's just like hmm. chicken shittically cutting himself, like slowly <laughs> backing out of her life. And they've been together for like 14 years. 14 right? years. God, what a piece Come of on. shit. Piece Sermon. of shit, you gotta dude. Have a one conversation, hi. It seems like she's also in denial for a lot of this period. It seems like she didn't really get the fact that the relationship was kind of petering out. And also some of her friends report her saying oh, Hi's going to ask me to marry him mm. any day now. <sighs> As this is happening, there's also all these rising tensions at school. So even though she's quite good at her job, because she's getting a little bit more erratic, there is like a increasingly vocal contingent that is like anti-gene. So <laughs> they hire, a, I think, like an investigator to do an investigation of her first two years on the job, and they produce a report. Mm where they interview a bunch of students and teachers who aren't happy with her for whatever reason, and she gets a copy of the report. And so she finds out all these, like, nasty things that people are saying about her. Again, she just sort of starts to feel like the walls are closing in. Mm. She's been on the drug now for, like, nine years at this, like, pretty high dosage. Oh, yikes. She later says, I felt like I had failed everyone. I was doing the best I could, and it didn't seem to be enough, and I didn't have the strength to do any more. And then... On March 2nd, 
1980, she runs out of Dizoxin. <gasps> oh, no. She knew this was coming. She had been calling him, but he's not picking up the phone. And I guess it takes a couple days for methamphetamine withdrawal to kick in. So at first she's like, oh, this isn't so bad. I can just like not take the pills. But by like a week, six days later, you get like severe, really severe depression. You get more erratic. You get like this sense of fatigue and hopelessness. She says she keeps walking into the living room, which I guess is a mess in her house. And she says, I had this urge to clean it up, but I didn't know how. Mm. Just hanging up a dress felt like more decisions than I could cope with. So she just like goes into the living room, looks at it, is overwhelmed, and then leaves. I really, I feel like I know that feeling. And that, I mean, there's like many ways to get to it, but it does feel like one of the sub-basements of depression where it's like your body feels like a mech suit yeah. that you've forgotten how to manipulate. Yeah. It's not clear if she sort of even understands what's going on with her too, because I don't think she ever quite got like what a big deal it was to be on this like huge dose of desoxin. And like the fact that she's now, she's gone cold turkey off of this medication now. Yeah. So the day before the murder... She sits down and writes him an 11-page letter. Mm -hmm. It starts with, I'm distraught as I write this. Your phone call to tell me you preferred the company of a vicious, adulterous psychotic was topped by a call from the dean of students 10 minutes later and has kept me awake for almost 36 hours. Mm. It's basically, it's like an airing of grievances email. (laughs) I've written like a very long one of these. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I I don't really know any humans who haven't done this at some point. Yeah. It is one of those things where like something happens to like set you off or like something becomes a metaphor for something much larger. And then you sit down and you're like, it reminds me of this time two years ago where you said this. And then three years ago, you also said this. And then four. It's like the kind of letter that's very important to write and very important not to send. Not to send. I know. Mm. The important thing is she she has a lot of really nasty stuff in there about Lynn. Mm. She calls Lynn a psychotic whore at, <gasps> at one point. She's like mad about money stuff because of the $4,000 thing. She Mm -hmm. says, I've grown poor loving you, while a self-serving, ignorant slut has grown very rich. Did people just call each other ignorant sluts in the 70s? (laughs) What was going on? As a sign of her mental state, like where she is, it's an 11-page letter, and she doesn't even bother putting it in order. She just, like, stuffs it in an envelope and sends it to him. Okay. Mm. So that was March 9th, 1980. March 10th, 1980, the fateful day... She wakes up early. She decides to call High Tarnower at his office because she can't get a hold of him anywhere else. There's been this really fucking weird thing where he has updated his will because he's getting all this extra diet money. And in his will, he has given Gene $220,000 and Lynn $200,000, which... Seems like a needless, like, pitting them against each other thing, but okay. Right. Everything he does, he finds a way to do it the shitty way. The shitty way. Exactly. So a couple weeks after they have this conversation about the will, she gets an anonymous note in the mail that is a photocopied page of his will, the page where he says how much he's giving them. Her $220,000 is crossed out (gasps) and Lynn... 
<gasps> is written in her place in his handwriting. <gasps> Can I just honestly say that, like, at this moment, if I were this woman who'd been on methamphetamines for, like, what, seven years or something and has just gone off of them and I've just seen my monetary value literally decreased by the hand of my lover. I'm not responsible for what happens next. I'm having a purge. Goblin mode. (laughs) It's goblin mode. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So she calls him at his office to be like, what the fuck? Is this real or is this like this deranged person who's been sending me weird stuff? Good job, Jean. Good job calling. I know. (laughs) Good job being confrontational. We love this for you. Yeah. So far. He denies that he's changed his will. He's like, I don't know who forged my handwriting, but like nothing has changed in my will calm down but also like who's doing this who's making the calls i am also annoyed by the fact that we don't know i know Uh. (laughs) and we do actually find out later that like yeah this is fake this didn't happen somebody faked the photocopied bill page oh wow Ah, what's going on according to gene this phone call with hi goes Okay. He's like, no, it wasn't me. It's not a big deal. There's some big gala dinner for him, like celebrating, I don't know, 40 years in Westchester County, something, something. And he had been thinking of inviting Lynn to the gala. And this, of course, Gene saw this as like a huge, extremely hurtful thing because like she's the one that goes to like formal events with him. And so according to her, he said, like, you're right. I'm sorry. I haven't called. I'll refill your prescription right now. And- You can come to the gala with me. That's in like six weeks time. So Uh. according to her, according to a patient who was in his office at the time and happened to overhear this extremely fatefully. Unprofessional. I know. But then the patient only hears the part of the conversation where he raises his voice. So the patient hears him at one point snap, why the hell are you always bugging me about this? And then silence, silence, silence. And then, God damn it, Gene, I want you to stop bothering me. Oh, Lord. And then doesn't hear anything else. Oh. So Gene, after this call, she tells her secretary to cancel all of her appointments that afternoon. There is a apparently a pond, like a nice pond with a bench near High Tarnower's house. Hmm. And so her plan is to drive up there, see him one last time, kind of say goodbye, and then go sit on this bench by the pond and kill herself. Mm -hmm. This is her plan. Mm -hmm. She goes home. She finalizes her will. She writes a letter of resignation that starts Mm. with, I was a person no one knew. She writes a note to a friend that starts with, I am so desolately lonely. Mm. At 5.16 p.m., she calls Hi to tell him she wants to see him. She's like, uh, can I come up and see you? You know, if I leave right now, I can be there by like 10 p.m. And he's like, uh, tonight's not good. I'm having friends over for dinner. Can you come tomorrow? And she's like, look, I can't tomorrow. And she says, just once, let me say when. This is also demeaning because he's like, I'm far too busy for your death. I know. (laughs) I know. Also, just once, let me say when is like, rip your heart right out. Yeah. She also has a whole thing in the letter where she says like, he never came to visit her in Philadelphia or DC. At least come for the museums. (laughs) (laughs) So... She puts her gun in her purse and she gets in the car and she starts driving up to his house. In another like Herman Tarnower dick move, he had friends over for dinner, 
they left, and then he just, like, went to bed. He didn't, like, wait up for her. Yeah, of course. Suzanne, the housekeeper, also says right before he went to bed, he took his typical nightcap of laxative and applesauce. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one in any of the, like, 1980s books that I read, like, seemed to, like, react to this at all. They're like, oh, yeah, the 80s. <laughs> Have an April like... spritz, man. Love a little. So very importantly, everything from here on out that we're going to hear about this is 100% from her account. Mm -hmm. She arrives at the house around 1030. He is asleep. She has a bouquet of flowers in her car because she like bumped into a student and a student was like, Mrs. Harris, here's a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> I like your student voice. That's my student voice. That's beautiful. I love that. I want more. Will the student come back into the story? That's all I want. <laughs> so she has this bouquet of flowers on the passenger seat and she's like, hi, might want these. I'll grab the flowers. So this will later be in the press as she went into his house with a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a gun in the other. Which is not quite true, but is like kind of true. If you're going to murder someone or whatever, you should never do it in a way that produces good copy. Listen, do murder it. people in a boring way, everyone. Exactly. So she goes into the garage. She goes into his bedroom and like turns the lights on and is like, hi. I guess he's just sort of like kind of confused. She says like, I, I, don't worry about it. I just want to talk for a second. And he's like, I, what? I don't want to talk. I'm, I'm, I'm asleep. Right. It's this interesting thing where it's like she in her head has planned this like nice kind of ending of the relationship, ending of her life yeah. conversation between the two of them. But she's also like kind of too impulsive to create that moment at a time that it's like appropriate. Based on what we know, I feel like perhaps Herman Tarnauer could be sort of less invested in pra practicing his empathetic muscles yeah. every day than a lot of other people. And I can see him reacting with this genuine, like, what the fuck is this about? I'm sleeping. Yeah. You know, just like, hey, th this is really fucking up my situation over here. And that's as much as I'm looking into it. So apparently he just like goes back to sleep and she's just like, well, what do, what do I do now? <laughs> just like in this guy's bedroom and he's sleeping. So she goes into the bathroom and of course what she sees in there is a bunch of like Lynn Triferos's stuff mm. because it's a weeknight and she's like the weeknight girlfriend. Mm. And one of the jobs of his housekeepers for years has been to like swap the girlfriends and like take all of Lynn's stuff away and add <gasps> her stuff. That sounds very stressful for Suzanne. Apparently Suzanne hated them both. <laughs> I don't really know why. If I were Suzanne, I would hate everyone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that seems right. Ugh. So Jean goes into the bathroom, sees a bunch of Lynn's stuff, and kind of like freaks out. So she grabs her curlers and like throws them at him. She grabs like a jewelry box and throws it and hits a dresser with a glass door. And the glass door breaks. Mm. She sort of storms out of the bathroom with like a, a nightgown of Lynn's in her hand. And Herman Tarnauer is up at this point. He's standing up and he hits her in the mouth. Mm. And according to her, he's never hit her before. Well, she's probably also never destroyed his furniture before. It's not clear that she's like ever stood up to him particularly. Right. So I don't think he's like used to this. Right. She says, hit me again. Hit me hard enough to kill me. Oh, Jean. And he says, get out of here. You're crazy. <sighs> She looks out the window and she's like, well, my plan of like going to the pond is probably done now. So I'm just going to kill myself here. Mm. So she reaches into her purse. She grabs the handgun out and she points at her head. And Herman Tarnauer lunges at her, 
to like mm-hmm. wrench her hands away from her head, right? So he hmm. grabs her hand right when this is happening and the gun goes off and she shoots him in the hand. Hmm. So he has a bullet hole through his hand and he's like, ah, what the fuck? Ugh. You know, all of this has happened in the space of like two minutes. Yeah. Yikes. So he goes into the bathroom to like dress his wound. And meanwhile, in this little tussle, the, the gun has fallen out of her hand. So the gun, mm-hmm. is, like, it's not clear where the gun is. So she gets down on the ground and she's like putting her hand under the bed to get the gun. And right when she grabs onto it, she feels his hand on her other arm, like pulling her out from under the bed. He pulls her out. There's sort of like a, a tussle takes place. So he's trying to get the gun and then she has the gun and he has the gun. And at one point, he sort of falls over on top of her and she has the gun in her hand. And she can feel the muzzle, the barrel of the gun in her own stomach. Mm -hmm. So she's now kind of has her arm crunched under him and is pointing the gun at herself. And she pulls the trigger. Hmm. (sighs) She says she doesn't feel anything. Hmm. And her first thought is, why didn't I do this before? (laughs) Oh, God. I'm sorry. That's uh... (sighs) He sort of gets off of her. She shoves him off somehow. He's like slumped over across the bed now. And she puts the gun to her own head. And pulls the trigger again and (gasps) click. Uh It's out of bullets. She keeps pulling the trigger. Click, 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 click. And meanwhile, he has buzzed the servants. He has like an intercom phone. Uh Like the phone also works as like an in-house intercom system to call them. So he has buzzed the servants to come up. And so she knows that she only has like one or two minutes before they get there. And she's like, oh, shit, I have to kill myself like before they get here because like this is just a mess. So she goes into the bathroom. She says when she bought the gun, she didn't ask the guy how to unload it because she was like, well, I'm only going to need it once. So she doesn't like know how to take the bullets out. Hmm. She opens it up. She's like banging it against the tub in the bathroom to like get the bullets out. Ugh. So she sees him kind of struggling to get up and struggling to like go for the phone. Mm-hmm. She runs back into the bedroom. She picks up the phone. She sees that it's dead hmm. and she knows that there's like a rec center or something about a quarter mile down the road that has a payphone. Hmm. And so she decides she's going to go to the rec center and use the payphone there to call an ambulance. And so she runs out and she gets in her car and she starts driving toward the rec center. And as she's driving to the rec center, she sees a cop with his flashers on coming the other way. So 911 has already been called. And this cop is like coming, thinking that they're investigating a burglary. As the cop passes her, she pulls a U-turn, follows the cop, into the driveway of Herman Tarnauer's house and, like, leaps out of her car and tells the cop, like, there's been an accident, a man has been shot, you've got to get up there as fast as possible. And the cop is like, holy shit! So the cop runs up the stairs. They both run up there. Suzanne and Henry are in the room, and when they see the police officer, like, running up the stairs, apparently Henry goes, that's her, that's the one, she's the one that shot Herman Tarnauer. (laughs) And Gina's like, yeah, I... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> huh? I'm not like, yeah. this isn't like a whodunit situation. <laughs> so they run up the stairs. The cop looks at Herman Tarnauer, kind of figures out what is going on. He runs back to his car to get some medical supplies. And she sits down next to Herman Tarnauer and strokes his face. And according to everybody, all the witnesses that were there, she says, oh, hi, why didn't you kill me? Oh, Gene. Oh. Uh. And he dies at the hospital like an hour later. So, Mike, here's my question, and maybe this isn't the moment for it. 
How much do you believe her account? Do you 100% believe it? I don't know. I emotionally believe it. Hmm. I think that it is broadly true. The problem hmm. is that Herman Tarnauer has four bullet wounds. Oh. Whoa. All right, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So in her story, she remembers shooting him in the hand and she remembers like whatever the shot was when she thought it was pointed herself, which would have been like in his stomach or something. But he has one bullet wound in his palm, one in his chest pointing downward, one in his shoulder, and one in his upper arm. Hmm. So that doesn't match up. Hmm. But then at the same time, there's lots of evidence that does match up. So when the cops get there, she has a cut on her lip from where he hit her. There's like chunks out of the bathtub from where she banged the gun against it. Hmm. Lynn Triferos's nightgown is on the ground from where Jean dropped it. Hmm. The reason why I emotionally believe her is that when you read Shauna Alexander's book, which is actually really good, you don't get a portrait of somebody who's like calculating, manipulative, puppet master type of person. Like she's not somebody who tells a lot of lies. Mm -hmm. You get the portrait of somebody who's messy. Mm -hmm. And like her description of shooting a guy twice when he has four bullet wounds mm. sounds more like human memory to me than lying. Yeah. Because if she was going to lie, if she was a calculating person, she would account for the four bullets. That's like <laughs> the first thing you would account for if you were going to make up your motivations and make up this, you know, what happened in that room. I mean, we're also getting into the question of like, if you're in such a kind of like self-destructive, like Michael Douglas and falling down type state, right. then like how lucid is your reckoning with sort of anything that you're doing? Yeah, this is one of those kinds of things where I'm like, it's very easy to speculate from a comfortable distance, but I feel very convinced that I have no idea how I would respond or what I would remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also the the by far the worst detail about all this is that Ugh. the next morning, her dioxin arrives in the mail. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say that the next morning she eats half a grapefruit and a piece of bread. <laughs> <laughs> the absolute worst part of this is that she went all in on the Scarsdale diet. <laughs> As penance. <sighs> but so it is, I mean, if he had managed to talk her down or just rescheduled for the next day, it's yeah. quite possible that none of this would have happened. Oh, yeah. Or what you know? if she just like stopped at a day's end and was like, you know what? I'm going to try and have a good night's sleep. Yeah. <sighs> when this story appears in the newspapers and it becomes, I mean, within hours, it's like a massive media story. Sure. People put it into the frame of like the spurned lover murders her man. Mm. People kind of fill in the blanks as they always do from this like very incomplete information. And what it sounds like is just a pretty clear love triangle story. This lady is dating this guy. She finds out that he's cheating on her. And so she goes over to his house with a revolver and shoots him in cold blood. God damn it. It really is sort of perfectly packaged to scratch a similar kind of itch in the public imagination as like Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco or like, yeah, yeah, look yeah. at these crazy ladies just being <sighs> driven to the brink by these dudes right like the shooting people for no reason out of the blue and it's like oh it was yeah. out of the whatever lightning comes out of i guess one of the things that's so interesting about this is like you know there's a temptation to see older stories like this and kind of find the misogyny in them but it seems like the public was really on her side oh interesting a lot of this. there's a lot of i mean i read a lot of like think pieces 
from the early 1980s about how women were talking about this, you know, like in, in mm-hmm. hair salons. I mean, this was this was like the, the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial of the time. It, was, it became this bellwether of like how you think about all these other broader social trends. Mm-hmm. And a huge number of people were just like, yeah, I've dated guys like this. Fuck this guy. I mean, there were people that went to the trial and would like clap for her. Whoa. The crowd in the courtroom was super pro Jean. Don't you think it's interesting that Lorena Bobbitt had a much rougher time in this situation and she didn't kill anybody? It's so weird. I kept thinking this. <laughs> so the the next chapter of the story is the trial, which happens eight months later. <laughs> it's actually a very weird trial. So Diana Trilling's book is one of the most boring things I've ever read and hmm. is basically a day-by-day description of the trial. It's for people who want the thrill of jury duty but haven't been selected <laughs> yet. Yeah. There are dozens of us, Mike. Dozens. <laughs> it's a really weird trial because, first of all, it's the, it's at the time the longest murder trial in New York State history. It's four months long. Oh. What's so weird about it to me is that there's not that much debate hmm. over what actually happened, right? Because as far as the facts, Jean Harris is not saying, I didn't shoot him, I was somewhere else that night. Mm-hmm. She she confesses to the crime within minutes of it. And then the prosecutor never even tries to say that this was premeditated. Hmm. No one at any point says, like, she's a black widow and she plotted this for months. <laughs> all the stuff about <laughs> acting erratically and, like, writing out her will, all of that is really well established. So if the prosecution tried to make the case that this was, like, a cold, calculated murder, the defense would just eat their grapefruit. Like, it would just not work. So both the defense and the prosecution admit that she killed him in the middle of some sort of mental breakdown. Mm. The only thing that this comes down to is, was this an accidental death or did she intend to kill him? Mm -hmm. That's basically it. It's actually like quite a narrow question. Yeah. And it relies on either having witnessed the event or knowing her mindset. Right. I mean, there's some evidence here that she didn't even totally know her mindset. Yeah. And she also, because there's the mental illness stuff and because she's also deeply in denial about that fact that she has mental illness, the the whole thing of dysoxin is like not mentioned. What? Really? They're just like, yeah, we're all on speed back now. So whatever. Oh my God. It's unbelievable to me. So most of the trial, again, mind numbing tedium, is forensic experts. (gasps) Tell me more. Tell me more. (laughs) Sarah, the level of fucking pseudoscience in this trial, it is incredible. So... The, there's peer-reviewed articles after this trial. The one good thing that comes out of this trial is a broader debate about how important medical examiners and forensic testimony have become in murder trials. I yeah. think it was like kind of a wake-up call because hmm. the medical examiner who testifies at the trial for the prosecution, obviously, he changes his own autopsy report four times. That's a lot of times. Whoa. The prosecution's theory of the case is that basically she walked into his bedroom in cold blood, boom, 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 and then walked out. Okay. And the the hand wound is a defensive wound. So the idea is she walked into his room, pulled out the gun, and he's like, no, no, no. And he put up his hand in a defensive pose, mm. which like is quite normal. And then mm. she shoots him through the hand and the bullet goes into his collarbone. And that's the chest hmm. wound. It's the same wound. That's compelling, I guess. Yeah. So this medical examiner has this whole thing where, like, you can tell 
that the shot in his chest had already hit the hand because it didn't hit with as much force. Mm -hmm. Completely fake shit. They also later in the trial, they like recall him and he says, "Uh uh-uh, there's something special about palm skin. It's different than other skin. And we found flecks of palm skin in his chest cavity. Is there any anything to that? No. It seems like the argument that they make when they try and sell you a separate moisturizer for under your eyes. <laughs> where they're like, no, nah, it's different. <laughs> the experts that talk about this later are like, we can't even tell if it's skin. Oh, like it might it God. might be pajamas. It might be a piece of grapefruit. You cannot tell things with this level of granularity from gunshot wounds. Right. You just can't. The more specific the forensic theory, if it's something like this, where it's like, based on the blood spatter or based on the gunshot wounds, we think that this one very specific scenario happened. And it's like, that doesn't sound very persuasive. Like, it would be not like, I get why it's very appealing to believe that people can look at a scene post-mortem and be like this is exactly what happened but like it that's no no (laughs) exactly and then also there's there's also a defense expert who is also Mm. pseudoscience so he says that he can triangulate from like the bullets ricochet and how it broke the window where gene harris was standing when she fired the shot huh no you can't like from a broken window right (laughs) you cannot tell where a bullet came from. You can be like, she was probably right around here, but not, right. Yeah. He also does some blood spatter stuff. He says the shot in his hand should have made blood spatter, but it actually made blood mist. What? So that's how we can tell that Gene that Gene Harris is not lying. Dexter reporting for duty. Blood <laughs> spatter yeah. expert. Let's roll. It's the fakest shit. I mean- I think it's just a really interesting example of how, first of all, criminal trials are just bad ways to get to the truth in general, because that's not really mm-hmm. what they're set up for. They're they're set up to answer these very narrow questions. Yeah. And secondly, there's there's just a lot of stuff you're never going to know. Yeah. There isn't any forensic science that is going to be able to say what took place in this like six minute period between two people, one of whom cannot tell us what happened. Yeah. And even if they could tell us, even if we could get Herman Tarnauer's ghost to come testify, his account would differ in, yeah. you know, various ways. Memory differs between two people who are both at an event, and then we would still be confused. Yeah. And then the the real fireworks of the trial are Gene Harris testifies for eight days. Ooh. This is the thing that turns basically everybody against her. Oh, really? Because... She's terrible on the stand. Oh, no, Jean. As so many of us are. I worry about this all the time now. <laughs> about your impending trial? Well, I, <laughs> as a person who has, like, a kind of weird demeanor, the idea that, like, people are judged purely on their whether their demeanor is weird. Yeah, totally. Like, I think about this every day. Totally. As someone with also a weird demeanor, as you know. As someone who deals with almost all discomfort by laughing. Right. It's not a great look for this guy Either. Uh-huh. I know it's not <laughs> like right now. <laughs> ah. Murder. So basically, I mean, she wears dark glasses on the stand, which do not help her. She never makes eye contact with the jury. She tells like weird lies. She says when she first started dating high, they weren't very intense at first because like I had small children at home. Even though her children were like 14 and 16 when they met. Were they like gymnasts or something? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
she doesn't seem to take the proceedings seriously. Like during cross-examination, you know, the prosecutors do the thing, isn't it true? And, da, 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 and it's, it's kind of this back and forth. And she sort of stops at one point and turns to the judge and is like, is he going to keep doing this? I'm exhausted. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's killer. Wow. More people need to ask that. <laughs> they also set traps for her. Mm. So this phone call that she had with High on the morning of the murder, where she calls about the will and the pills and everything else, she describes that in her testimony as like, we talked, he said he was going to send me the pills, he invited me to this gala, everything was fine. But then this patient who heard one side of the conversation was a surprise witness. Oh, boy. That person was only called in the last day or two of the trial. So the jury had already heard Gene Harris describe this as like a peaceful coming together conversation. And then they hear this patient say, oh, I heard him snap at her. Like it sounded like a fight to me. So it sounds... Like they've caught her in a lie. But Shauna Alexander's explanation of this is basically that Gene Harris, for most of their relationship, was kind of in denial about how he felt about her. So the fact that what she fixates on in this conversation is that he invited her to this dumb gala and doesn't remember the fact that he snapped at her isn't necessarily a lie. It's kind of the nature of their relationship and the nature of her mental illness. Yeah, totally. So that... Just really does not do her any favors. And then the big thing is that they read the letter out loud. Mm. That kills her because the prosecutors had very deliberately built her up as like a classy lady, right? She's wearing mink on the stand. Mm. She has this upper class bearing about her. Isn't it true that you function in disaster and finish in style? (laughs) (laughs) So they they build her up as this like high class lady. And then they read the letter where she's talking about like you psychotic whore. Mm. And so all of a sudden it starts to look like she's this huge hypocrite. Hmm. I mean, this is something that like men love to say about women, right? Like she acts like she's so classy. But deep down inside... She's a terrible person. All of the air goes out of her as someone that you can sympathize with just immediately as soon as they read the letter out. Hmm. It also feels like coming right off of our Pete Evans two-parter, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's so much that that guy has to say about like sort of quote unquote victim mentality. And I think that that is something that culturally, certainly in the United States, we cannot abide Mm. and we slot mental illness into victimhood mentality headspace. We slot drug addiction into victimhood mentality space. There are all of these things that we sort of misascribe these kind of cultural scripts to that allow us to stop paying attention to them. Hmm. Ideally, we would meet that with more compassion. But instead, I do think there is an undercurrent of like, oh, she's just another victim, right? Yeah. Yeah. Our preference for the other story also suggests as many other things do that like as a culture we kind of think murder is cool which um, yeah, i don't right. know what to do yep. with that <laughs> yep <laughs> when it comes to the verdict the jury is given three options the first option is second degree murder which means that she intended to kill him it wasn't necessarily premeditated but in the moment she intended to kill him if they don't think that she's guilty of that they can say that she's guilty of second degree manslaughter which is like reckless endangerment. Mm. You have a gun at your house and you're playing with it with a friend and you Hmm. accidentally kill them, right? It's like, you didn't mean to kill the person. You never intended to kill the person, but Mm. you know, you should have been more careful. Mm -hmm. They can also just declare her not guilty. Right. Basically, this was a tragic accident. Nobody needs to 
pay any penalties for this. Hmm. So if you two were given those options, what would you guys go for? Well, Aubrey, I feel like we have to come up with a unanimous verdict because that's how juries work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. Two angry ladies. Boy, there's both evidence and not evidence of her own intent, right? Yeah. There's mm-hmm. clear evidence that she's going through it. There's not clear yeah. evidence that she intends to murder this dude. Mm-hmm. If those are the only two options on the table, as they often are for juries, I would go manslaughter would mm. be my my the way that I would lean. How about you, Sarah? Yeah. I mean, to me, manslaughter makes sense because... To me, when there isn't specific evidence affirmatively pointing to somebody having intent to kill, then I lean toward the lesser charge, which is why I can never run for mayor because I'm soft on crime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, the jury is unanimous. This is great. Fastest deliberation ever. Yeah, it's funny you say that because the jury deliberated for eight days, which was the longest deliberation in New York State history at the time. Wow. And they came up with a verdict of... Guilty of second degree murder, Mm. which carries with it a minimum sentence of 15 years. Mm. She won't even be eligible for a parole hearing for 15 years. What was the public response to that verdict? By the time we got there, everyone hated her because of how she was on the stand. Mm. It turns out it's not this like badass story of a revenge killing or like Mm. I am woman, hear me roar type of thing. (laughs) All of the details that we know about things like she was on methamphetamines and she knew about Lynn Triferos basically the entire time. All of that stuff feels to people like some sort of betrayal or some sort of twist because all they've gotten is this really one-dimensional revenge story. I also think this is a huge part of why the case is such a forgot buster, that it looked at the time like this was going to have all this resonance for men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of narratives. And then it turns out to just be like a woman with a long history of depression and a precipitating incident and access to a gun, which is like, exactly the kind of killing that like we're used to in america mike aubrey don't you find it extremely interesting that people are like more prone to sympathize with somebody who formed murderous intent in a revenge kind of way than somebody who is just like really sad and beaten down by circumstance in a really shitty relationship and like lost herself and yeah like what like it it's so interesting that we're like no give me the like she killed someone totally on purpose yeah. out of revenge one. Like, what's that? I, I, I find this totally baffling. Shauna Alexander's theory on what happened is that her lawyer made the disastrous decision to remove first-degree manslaughter as an option. So first-degree manslaughter is where you intend to harm someone, but you don't intend to kill them under New York state law. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like I'm getting a bar fight, I punch the guy, and then he like stumbles backwards, falls down, cracks his head open, and he dies. That one feels like it at least – it gives them another option. And also that mm-hmm. sentence would have been two to six years, and considering that she has no criminal record – she probably would have gotten two years. But to me, I don't understand how her lawyer thought he would get not guilty. Yeah. Like, she did do something extremely reckless, right? When you're in the middle of a fight with your boyfriend or a a slowly dying relationship, 
it's a really bad idea to show up at your boyfriend's house with a loaded gun. Mm. So I think that what she did is understandable given everything else we know that was going on, but it's not defensible. Well, this is also interesting because I've been researching um, John Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate mm. Reagan in the early 80s, like around this time. I'm pretty sure it was mm. 81. His trial like led to dramatic reforms of the ability to plead not guilty by reason of insanity because he actually was found not guilty on that basis. And so I feel like possibly if he was going for an insanity defense, I can see him expecting the proceedings to like make that a lot more possible than they are today. But like, but, yeah. but was he though? Well, apparently, so they of course had three different psychiatrists examine her and one of the psychiatrists who examined her I guess just fucking hated insanity as a defense. Huh. Like he just had a huge chip on his shoulder about it. And so if he was ever going to testify in the trial, he would have said, no, she's not criminally insane because he didn't believe in the concept. Right. This is what sane people do. <laughs> totally. And this is also like not long after the Harvey Milk and George Moscone assassinations mm. oh, yeah. and the Twinkie defense stuff, which just right. sent people into fucking orbit about Right. Any kind of emotional distress defense, any kind of insanity right. plea, any kind of any of that. Well, also what's so weird is that no one testified about her mental state in the entire trial. No psychologist. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's astonishing. I guess like, yeah, she was having a normal one. What they were worried about was that if a defense psychologist testifies, then all of their notes have to be given over to the prosecutor. And then you also have to have a prosecution psychologist examine her. Mm. But it's weird in a trial that is 100% about her intentions. Yeah. To not have anyone testify to that and only rely on this forensic bullshit. Mm. Do you think she was able to get a good lawyer? Like, how is she paying for all this? Because, like, she doesn't have that much money, so... Oh, my God. So, in, in the hours after she is arrested, she has friends that are lawyers. They hook her up with this lawyer guy. And he shows up and he's like, I will defend you. And she's like, I don't know if I can afford this. My entire life savings is $25,000. And he's like, $25,000 sounds right. Oh, God. <laughs> like every penny to her name. He's like, don't worry, you're going to prison. They'll feed you there. But this is another reason why she was convicted is that her lawyer had been part of like one of these big shoe law firms and had left like a month before he was defending her. So ordinarily you have a lawyer, but they're backed up by like, you know, there's paralegals. Yeah. But this guy had left his law firm and still had all of his clients. So wow. he was juggling all this other stuff and had essentially no team. It was like him and one assistant. Hmm. And apparently he collapsed from exhaustion <gasps> at one point Whoa. during the trial because he wasn't sleeping. Should have gotten some meth. They didn't get access to the crime scene until two months after the crime because he forgot to file some weird thing. Oh, no, oh, buddy. One of the reasons why he was so incompetent was basically because he believed her. Mm. And he thought like if she tells her story to the jury, they will believe her too. But the problem was he didn't prep her to testify at all. No. He told her the night before, oh, you're going on tomorrow. What? Oh, my God. It's fucking wild. And also, she also had this idea that, like, 
well, it's it's criminal justice. All I need to do is tell them what happened and I'll be fine. Oh, my God. No one told her, like, this is theater. You are giving a performance. Yeah. Right. And part of your job is not to volunteer additional information, even though that's how human conversation works. Right. Like, yeah, I will say I have a good friend who's a litigator. And boy, oh, boy, that dude spends weeks prepping people. Yeah. This is bananas. And it also it makes it really hard to file appeals because they tried to file a couple appeals on grounds that she had ineffective counsel, but he is the only person who like knows the case well enough and all the details to make the filings. Uh-huh. So basically the same lawyer was filing that his own defense was incompetent. Huh. So like they make a couple appeals, none of them go anywhere. Huh. That's I mean, that's kind of the end of the story. She she goes to prison. There is a concerted effort by this is very weird by Shauna Alexander, the author of this book, who who quite openly became friends with Jean Harris in the course of writing this book. Mm-hmm. Ellen Burstyn, who played her in the movie and liked her, and I think met her, and Orrin Hatch, the center from Utah, <laughs> what? who's like a right wing asshole, was not expecting that to happen. I think he sat next to Shauna Alexander on a plane, oh, and then like, they became friends. Of course. The good news is, after eleven years, in 1992, she's granted clemency by. Mario Cuomo. Another cameo. She basically dedicated the rest of her life to like raising money for the women's correctional facility that she had been in. Hmm. When she was in there, because she's a, a headmistress and a teacher, she basically set up like a preschool. A lot of the people that are in there are pregnant and there's a deal where you can either give up your baby the minute it's born or you can keep it for the first year and then give it up for adoption. And so Jean Harris became this like mom to these like mostly black, almost all poor ladies that have been like ground up in the criminal justice system. And she like every, you know, she does a Barbara Walters interview. Like every time she's interviewed, she's like, yeah, the criminal justice system exists to like incarcerate black people, like poor black people. All right. And that's like basically what she spends the rest of her life doing and talking about. She just like lives a quiet life and then she dies of a heart attack in 2012. Wow. This is Harris. So what do you guys think? This was uh. This is a crossover event. This one is a Mad Lib, man. Yeah. I know. It's weird. I'm thinking about, I just spent a week with my extremely cool teen niece. Mm -hmm. I had asked her about like what kind of sex ed she got. And she said that they have a bunch of classes on like healthy relationships and they watch clips of like two people interacting and they go, okay, what do you think like happened there? Did you see boundaries being set? Did you see boundaries being respected? Like, I was like sort of astonished that there had been this absolute quantum leap (laughs) in thinking about how to teach kids about not just sex, but relationships, right? And boy, oh boy, do I wish Jean had access to some of that. I know. Like, man, I wish somebody like had sat down Jean and there had been sort of the cultural pretext to do this, right? And just said like, this dude is bad news and he's treating you like shit and you actually deserve significantly better. You gotta have other people in your life to tell you when your boyfriend sucks. I mean, I had a mental image earlier of like women eating tiny salads or, you know, little fruit salads for lunch, for that matter, as like the sort of diet metaphor for this kind of relationship practice where you're like in a race with all other women to prove that you're the lowest maintenance. And then you win and you demonstrate that. And then you obviously lose by winning because your boyfriend is giving you like 75 emotional calories a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Good Lord. <laughs> but it's easy. And if you can't stick with it, it's your problem. <laughs> yeah. I also, I mean, this is something me and you talked about a lot when we were doing You're Wrong About, Sarah. I'm always worried that bringing context to stories like this is going to make it sound like we're saying he deserved to get murdered, mm. right. which like obviously is not the case. I think that this relationship destroyed her life, destroyed her mental health, destroyed her life. And I think it's easy to hear something like that as he intended to destroy her life. Hmm. But I don't think that's the case. Mm. Yeah. As I often say, it's the the people who tend to destroy your life are the ones who like don't value it very much and therefore just don't think about it terribly much either. Like mm. the idea that you have to really be planning to destroy someone's life to do that maybe allows more of these yeah. casual life ruiners to fly under the radar. This is all from the sweetie nose school of jurisprudence. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, honey. Uh-uh. So that was, uh, that was Gene Harris. That was the Scarsdale Diamond. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming for a crossover event, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, I had such a good time. I was wondering, and this is totally my idea because nobody has brought it up to me this entire time. Uh, if you would like to visit You're Wrong About and talk about OJ a little bit. Uh, I've heard of it. I've heard of him. First time going on. It'd be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the show. Oh, my God. But we like to reexamine um, a misremembered cultural event. All I know is it got a lot better last October. I don't know why. <laughs> I haven't heard that. that, actually. <laughs> yes, I would love to. Oh, my God. Thank you. Thank you for coming back into the courtroom with me. <laughs> Guys, I love this. <laughs> <laughs>